I'm super excited about my guest today, Yatsu. He's the chairman of Anacoka Brands. He has been involved in some of the most pioneering web free NFT and metaverse projects in the world, such as Sandbox. His company recently was valued at over $6 billion. He has knowledge you need. In my opinion, you can see the future. Today's podcast is brought to you in partnership with Hong Kong Broadband Network. They are a purpose-driven telco and a digital transformation solutions leader with operations in Hong Kong, Macau, mainland China and Southeast Asia. And they are a firm believer in change or die. And it's my honor to have them as a sponsor for the podcast today. This special episode of the Unicorn Podcast is in partnership with Start Me Up Hong Kong. The Start Me Up Hong Kong Festival is Asia's leading annual startup event curated by Invest Hong Kong. Returning in hybrid format this year from the 5th to the 10th of September under the theme, A Future Unlimited. If you happen to have missed the festival when listening to this podcast, you can catch all the highlights to the event in the links below. I'm going to tell you a quick story about how technology can change everything. Recently, we helped a homeless lady called Andrea. Four days ago, she was homeless. We met her, we helped her, we gave her money for accommodation. We trained her on how to make money on TikTok and we gave her a mobile phone so she could go live. 24 hours later from her setting up an account, she has 75,000 followers, 75,000 people helping her. She's making $100 a day from TikTok. Now she can pay for her own accommodation and her own food. Technology is here to help us. People think social media is bad. Of course, everything has an element of bad. But if we can turn social into good, if we can turn the metaverse into good, if we can use Web3 to empower people, the world can be a better place for you and your children. And I believe with all my heart that Yat is one of these people that can help you understand it and do it. Yat, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for being here. It's a pleasure to be here as always. Yeah, look, for those that don't know you, and, and I'm always surprised that people don't know you because you're leading the whole um, metaverse NFT world uh, in the right direction, in my opinion. Um, but for those that don't know you, could you, in your own words, just take a minute to explain who you are and, and what you do? Sure. Uh, my name is Yatsu. I'm chairman and co-founder of a uh, company called Animoca Brands. We have been around really for over a decade as a business, you could say, but really entering the what we now call the open metaverse, you know, through digital property rights, NFTs, really began in late 2017. And when we saw that potential, we basically felt that that is where the web has to go. And what is now typically known as Web3, we feel that is going to be the next iteration of the web. And our North Star, our mission, is to basically ensure that this reality happens in the decentralized, distributed manner in which Web3 and blockchain should be. Uh, and to do that, we not only build businesses, such as the Sandbox, for instance, that maybe a lot of people know from uh, our group companies, but we have over 20 today. We also invested very heavily, over 340 companies to date, you know, with companies such as OpenSea, Dapper Labs, Axie Infinity, you know, Wax, Decentraland, you know, and all of these companies to help build out, uh, including Yuga Labs, the creators behind Board Apes. You know, we, we did all of this to ensure that there's going to be a large enough economy, a big enough space in Web3 that it becomes such a powerful force that it effectively brings down these digital walled gardens that we feel have really sort of created a big problem in the world today. Now, folks, we're going to go deep into uh, Metaverse and NFT and Web3 and how it can change the world. 
listen carefully. Try to listen and understand how this all works. So, yeah, let's go quickly to something quite controversial. You talked recently on Twitter about digital uh, dictatorship. Tell us a little bit about what that's all about. Well, I think one of the big things that most people don't fully understand today is that the most valuable resource on Earth is data. Now, what is data really? Right? Data is to us the resource of the metaverse. It is actually the source of power and information and knowledge that essentially is the main commodity of basically Web3, or really Web2 for that matter. And why is it so powerful? It's because data in and of itself has the ability to create limitless network effects. Now, in the past, we lacked the machines to be able to create value out of the data. So if you remember back in the early days of the internet, when we were sort of building you know, our businesses, we were all talking about collecting data, but the computing power was unable to make sense of all of it. So we were collecting all this data and it was mostly rubbish. So we couldn't really create value out of that. And then came AI, deep learning, and sort of the progress we've seen in the whole machine learning space. And that happened around mid 2000. And that revolutionized it. The way I think of it is a little bit like looking at the discovery of oil. So we may have had oil in the backyards all this time, but we lacked the machinery to refine it to create this valuable resource that you know, became at one point the most valuable commodity on Earth. And this valuable commodity has now shifted from energy to data. If you look at who are the most powerful companies today, they're all data-rich companies. And now what's interesting about this is that this data that has this ability to construct limitless network effects, we own our own data, we think. But actually, what's valuable isn't the data itself that we produce or create. It's the network effects that are built from the data inside these platforms. Because it's not what you and I know individually. It's actually what billions of people collectively put together and create knowledge that is beyond all of our own abilities in and of itself. Now, when you think of the human condition, that is actually how we create knowledge. Think of us having this conversation or when we're in a round table and sharing information between 10 of us or 20 of us, what do we do? We share our data. We enrich the knowledge that I have with your knowledge, with the conversation, with the dialogue, and come out with new insights and create new innovations or new ideas or new businesses that we can learn from. That is data. And that data actually doesn't belong to us, which basically means that platforms like Facebook are now basically robbing us of that time and that data. Now, the thing is that if you view data as a property, as we think it should be, because it's a resource, then it actually means that we should be paid for that time. So the way we think of it is that every person who uses Instagram, every person that uses Facebook, is in fact working for the platform for free. But because like you know, the lack of transparency of the resource, we do not know what it's worth. Now imagine if you knew that your time on Facebook every day was, let's say hypothetically, worth $10 or $20, right? Your relationship with the platform would change because it'd be like, wait, you made $10 or $20 on my activities because you learned something about my engagement that may maybe help you sell ads or help sell your product? Well, then you would ask for your fair share. Now, actually, this is not that uncommon. If you look at Web1, the rice farmer in China was finally able to demand the fair price of rice because he knew through the internet that his rice was sold for a different price. And suddenly everyone's like, wait, actually, you know, you're selling this for 10 bucks. I'm not going to sell it to you for 10 cents. I want it for at least two or three dollars. And that gave rise to the platforms, whether this is, you know, what became Amazon or eBay or Alibaba, right? That commodity trade of valuable resources came from the fact that there was knowledge as to what the markets were able to pay for it. And data is the one area where that's hidden to us. 
I don't actually know, none of us truly know within the platform what it's worth. And that's why blockchain is so powerful because the audit trail is there. Whether this is an NFT, whether this is utilized in a fashion, you can now audit it all the way back to say, wait, that asset is now worth $20 or $2,000 or $1 million. And for that, I can demand my fair relative share. Now, the platforms, we call them basically feudal kingdoms and essentially dictatorships, because at the end of the day, they decide everything about us. Not only do they control our data, they actually control the entire existence because we don't own anything on the platform. That Instagram handle that you nurtured for years and brought millions of customers, is that yours? No, they can take it away anytime. That Twitter handle, not yours. That app on the App Store, is it really your right to be there? Or are you there really at the sort of blessing of the king that is Apple? And of course, it's that, right? If they don't like what you do, if they change their rules, which they so often do, and they consider you in violation of these rules, then essentially they evict you at any time. Now, in the physical world, that can happen. If you own your property, you have a house, there is a due process. The government can't just simply evict you. The former building, so one who built the building can't say, you know what, actually, I don't want you to own this building anymore. Let me just take that back by making some changes in the rules because I think you've breached the terms of service, right? We have a rule of law. We have a judiciary that can handle this. But in the online world, we exist on terms of service. And we gave it away because we didn't understand its value because when the internet first started, it was an add-on to our life. Our life was physical and online was really, you know, the 10%, the 20%. It added value to our life, but it wasn't our life. But that's completely changed. Think about what you do first thing in the morning. What do you do most of the day? What do you do before you go to bed? Chances are you are doing an online activity, which basically means that I would argue that we're already digital dependents. We're already in a kind of pre-metaverse. The problem is who owns our time in that space? And the answer is, of course, not us which is why we're existing in digital dictatorships, and which is why we believe that by opening it up, we create the open market frameworks as you do in the, uh, in, in the physical world when we went from feudal to democratic capitalist societies. This is absolutely fascinating. And I, and, and I just want to make sure people grasp what you just said, because I think people don't realize that these assets in their lives, these things that have helped them make money, or do help them make money or help them have presence and brand, personal brand, they don't own them. And so when, when you know, of course, controversially, you see someone like Donald Trump get his Twitter handle taken off him, then, you know, even no one's immune to the power of these companies, right? So, so when people listen to it, though, I guess, what's the hope? Is, is Web3 the hope then? Is, is, there, is there going to be alternatives to Facebook that are decentralized? Is, is, that, is that the answer? Is it already happening? And if so, anybody you want to highlight that's doing it well? Well, I think the main thing is that while we're still at the early stages, this idea of owning digital property truly and having the ability to frame the network effects that you can now share in through blockchain is really what's powerful here. Now, one of the big things that people don't understand about blockchain is, especially technologists, like hardcore data technologists, look at it just from a technological point of view, because I guess that's their lens. But what they sometimes fail to see is that actually the framework of blockchain is not its efficiency, because it's not the most efficient database for sure. In fact, what it is, it's the foundation of a political infrastructure, a sociological infrastructure that can be layered on top of a neutral platform that is technology. Now, this is really important to understand because that means that in the same way that a democratic system is not efficient, 
as compared to a despotic one, where, yes, the king can make a decision. He can say, go from point A to point B. We're going to destroy this building. We're going to change housing here. We're going to do whatever I want, because the decision is centralized and faster. But in so doing, are you building a consensus with your community? Are you creating a framework where you have true legitimacy? And generally speaking, you know, in the West anyway, we take that perspective that in order to be you know, democratically elected, really, it's not just because you're the most attractive. It's because it's a mechanism for you to have legitimacy, to say, I was there because the people wanted me to be there. Therefore, I have authority given to me to do the things that I'm allowed to do. And if I lose that authority, I have no permission. And we've seen this happen time and time again, I think very successfully. And it preserves at least the balance of you know, nation states and keeps basically you know, the all-powerful from you know, being too powerful and basically taking away sort of the rights that you know, sometimes they try to do or creating monopolies, for instance. And in the internet world, in the technology world, that framework didn't exist. Now, the way to imagine this is imagine if Facebook in the future was fully decentralized and the owners through maybe a token ownership or NFT ownership are effectively rights holders of the future of Facebook, what would Facebook look like? It would be very different because not only would its leaders be sort of, you know, democratically elected, shall we say, it would also make maybe decisions that fit an ethical or moral framework, not necessarily one that is entirely driven by a single profit goal, which is the problem about corporations as a whole. You know, it's nothing wrong about being sustainable and making money. Absolutely, that's necessary. But the thing is, if that's the only thing you focus on, then you do it to the detriment of everything else. And then you have also this scenario where you get to the zero-sum outcome, because at the end of the day, the growth of Facebook benefits who? Not the billions of users who use it, which is the irony. The billions of users who use it are actually making Facebook powerful. And what do they get for it? They get, you know, fun maybe, some time, maybe friendships. But the value flows predominantly to the company and its shareholders, which are not... Two billion people. Right? Well, I mean, it's, 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 it's you know, a very small number. No, no, it's true. And 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 sorry to interrupt you because I'm fascinated with what you're saying. But I just wanted to throw in that you know, actually, the the worst thing might be that these platforms aren't helping you; they're in fact manipulating you, even worse. And so, you know, I, I so is 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 there? Um, it, I know there's a decentralized uh, movement, but it, are we going to see? the uh, demise of Facebook and even Google and, and move to a decentralized world. Is, is, is that real? Is, is Web3 a real thing? And there's a lot of talk about that. Sure. So I think, again, I think Web3, Web3 is, a, is an absolutely a real thing because for the first time, you have something that has permanence in a technological framework that you can't remove unless you remove the internet entirely by itself. And it also needed time to develop to that space. I mean, we could have talked about blockchain or distributed systems 30 years ago. It would have made no difference because most of us were in digital dependence and the online world wasn't ready for this anyway. And now we are at this point where this is absolutely critical. It's a necessary thing. One of the things that I do believe is that, you know, when there is a problem, actually technology is a solution to these problems and the problems it creates itself, another technology will come to this, right? If you look at the iteration of Web 1, Web 2, Web 3, none of them started because of, you know, wanting to do some great evil or something, right? I mean, they started to solve a problem that existed in the past. The way I view it, you know, like the classic definition of Web 1, Web 2, and Web 3 is sort of read, read, write, and own. But, you know, the, the, the transitionary effect is effectively saying that what Web 1 really did is it helped transition, you know, the physical world into the meta world, the physical world, sort of to the digital world that sort of generally resides in, in the virtual sense. And then basically enhance the collaborative effect from Web 1 to Web 2. 
And now from Web 2 to Web 3, give us a right in them, in an ownership. So ownership doesn't just denominate that, you know, I own it and I can sell it. It actually entitles with it all the rights and privileges of ownership that we have in the world today. And so by decentralization, what's important, it's not necessarily to say that there's going to be a social network that isn't decentralized. It's actually all the assets are now flowing around that become ways in which you can construct business on top of it. So think about the physical world. The fact that you own your house is the reason why we can have IKEA, is the reason why a bank can give you a mortgage, is the reason why you know, we have businesses that employ people to come into our own homes to do business. The fact that you own a car is why there could be Uber. The fact that you own an iPhone is why we can have companies selling headphones and why we can have case companies and all these great new innovations. So the freedom of this decentralized ownership allows for decentralized businesses to emerge. It unhinges the restrictions of a, permiss- uh, a sort of a society that typically seeks permission, right? Like, you know, if I can just do it, it's a good idea. Do I need to talk to anyone for permission? No, I just put my risk capital to it. I build it out and let's see if it works. And if everything is permissioned, where I always have to say, am I allowed to do this? Can I please do this? Then actually there's a gatekeeper to the way an innovation can happen. So if imagine a society that has this gatekeeping environment, or if ownership was actually not owned, but entirely rented, and we always have to seek permission to make changes or add you know, opportunities into it, innovation would be stifled. But because it's decentralized today in the physical world, we can have all these new inventions that obviously sometimes cause chaos in the world, but it pushes society forward. And that's something that the digital world can have. I can't just launch anything on the App Store. I mean, if Epic, you know, the creator of Fortnite, which is one of the biggest games in the world, cannot launch their app on the App Store, I mean, what does that say to you, right? That's, 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 that's crazy as far as I'm concerned, right? Um, or, you know, Facebook can change the rules on you at any time. Now, property rights has one other element, which is stability, which is that if I own a piece of property, I know I can own it. And therefore, you know, as long as the government is stable, I believe a place in the UK, you know, UK for all its trials and tribulations will probably be around forever or at least long, long time. So a bank is happy to give you a 20 or 30 year mortgage. But if you knew that the rules would change every six months, you can't give someone credit beyond the six months, maybe not even, right? And that's the problem with online platforms. How many times has Facebook changed the rules on their APIs or Twitter or Apple? They change it all the time. Now that's imagine that's like you trying to rent a property where the tenant has the right, the landlord has the right to change the terms of his agreement with you every six months. How can you build a business when you don't have that? So this is the online world. Now there's a very direct corollary between countries and nations. And I always say this, when you look at blockchain, you have to look at it in a political construct, in a national construct. If you look at the nations that have poor property rights, the extreme being, for instance, North Korea, you notice that the GDP is very, very low and the actual average income per person is de minimis almost. And then you look at the countries that have strong property rights, you know, whether this is the UK or Hong Kong or US, right? despite all of their interests and issues that they may have economically and some of the inequity, the GDP is very high. The average GDPI is not just 10 or 20% higher. It's like 50 times bigger. So this is what we think will happen when we give property rights from the digital context, which is entirely feudal in its construction, which is similar to, say, North Korea in its setup, to actually give it the liberal sort of qualities that you know democracy and capitalism has given to the world. And then you will see the value increase because of the network effects that we can construct, because of new innovations that can be built in a permissionless manner. And it will create, as far as we're concerned, this incredible flourishing of innovation and ideas in the same way that it has happened in history when we finally got our true property rights. Wow. 
I, I guess um, people listening, I just imagine people listening, trying to get their heads around this and, and maybe asking themselves, what is the opportunity then? You know, what, 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 what should people do? If people are listening, they're younger yet, sitting there at 20. By the way, you're the, you're the only guest I've ever had in the podcast for th- three times. So anyone who wants to listen to your backstory and um, how you became an entrepreneur, I've got a whole podcast on that, guys. So you can go listen to that. The history of, of Yat is worth listening to. I'll put the link to those past podcasts down below. But I want, I want to get into something uh, a little bit fresh and new here. So what, what should people do? How can they be a part of this new world? What's what process? What would you do at twenty now? If you you know if you were twenty now, had no money, um, and and had a fascination around this subject, what what would you do? Well, I would do what we did when we were twenty, which is just go into the space. I mean, remember back in the early days when we were young, right? And, I remember, and you know we're still young at heart, I would say, right? But yes, we just looked at the internet and we said, "Wow, look at all that opportunity!" But not just that. What was the hope of the internet? Really, Web1 was a democratization of knowledge. It was a democratization of information and the free distribution of that. And it created a new framework of, really, if you think about it, a sense of equality that we had and equity, not in the sense of a property, but in the sense of, oh, I know things that you now know. We had knowledge equity, right? You, you didn't have more information than I had because, you know, on our fingertips, we all had access to online search. And therefore, we were similar in our abilities and we had a similar ability to sort of take advantage of this. And similarly, I would say the younger generation is born in the metaverse. I wouldn't say they're born in Web3, but they are natural to it. To them, this is normal, whether they be on TikTok or Instagram or Twitter or whatever that is. It's very normal, which is much harder for, frankly, most of our peers, right? Because they don't spend as much time online. They don't understand that culture. And this is the important part, right? When you are entering this space, it is about understanding the culture and subculture of that community, that society that's been constructed. And it's not that different when you think about moving into a new country or doing business in a new country. You can't enter China, for instance, and do business remotely unless you live there because you need to understand its nuances, its culture, the subcontext, the, you know, all the things that, that make it tick or not tick, for instance. And the metaverse is the same. Right. So who and, you know, what is the community that really gets this the best? And I would argue that it's a younger generation anyway. And in fact, when we look towards our future, that's what it's for anyway. Right. I mean, at the end of the day, sad as it may be, we're not going to be around forever. Who's going to be the longer than us? It's going to be our next generation. It's going to be our children and our children's children. So this is really for them. And I think the important thing here is that it's suited for them. This isn't an abstract construct. They're already online all the time. But maybe they don't fully understand some of the things that makes it valuable. And that's part of the mission, to make them understand that actually what you have today comes from a historical calling of what maybe your forefathers have sacrificed for. The fact that you actually have a democratic framework, the fact that you have property rights and that you can actually elect your leaders. You know, what's amazing is that in human history, this is a tiny blip. We're still in the social experiment of what a democratic system should look like. But, you know, since we don't live for hundreds of years, we take it for granted because that's the environment we've always grown up in. So we think, oh, well, you know, isn't this how it always is? But hey, you know, if you take a look at how things were, you know, hundreds of years ago when you were under the rule of a despotic king who got to decide everything about you, where there was clear class differences and there was, you know, no real sense of equity. You know, that is an environment I think many of us would say, actually, we don't like that. But of course, we don't know it because we don't have experience in it in living memory. So this is basically the important thing I think that people should understand is that actually, you know, we can learn from history as to where this future needs to go. 
in Web3, that we need democracy inside the web, which we currently don't really have because it's controlled really by, you know, a select few very large companies. I think one of the things I noticed about your portfolio, I mean, the 340 companies that you've invested in, is that there seems to be, you know, the whole analogy of like, um, you know, don't dig for gold, sell shovels to those that are digging for gold, you know, so like OpenSea is a platform that allows people to dig for gold, right? And, and um, of course, Sandbox is, is a place, I, I think Sandbox is a community product as much as anything else, like, uh, you know, the social side is, is not quite realized, people still see it as land and value and property and, and that, but I actually think there's a community side there. What do, 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 do you see any underlining trends? Again, just thinking about the audience listening if they were trying to pick up on like a nugget to go and run with it and build something for themselves that you might invest in one of those 340 companies how would someone become your 341 company what is what is the criteria you're looking for so the criteria for us are really two main criteria, and of course there's subtleties to this the first one is anything that help create more and deeper network effects to digital asset ownership so that means if i have an nft and i can actually add value to the experience of owning assets then we want to invest in that and support that. And the second one is around adoption. So are you creating a product that can help onboard more people into Web3 and convert them or make sure that they understand it better? So there's many aspects around that that, uh, that obviously are nuances to this, which is why I invested not just in OpenSea, but in wallet companies like Consensus. And, and of course, Sandbox kind of fulfills a little bit of both, right? Or like, you know, sort of a AAA Web3 games like Phantom Galaxies, they fulfill a combination of attracting you know non-web3 gamers into the world of web3 because the quality of the games is, is is beautiful and it seems to fit the narratives of games that they prefer and then they get moved on to the world of blockchain gaming for instance and learn about the benefits of being in web3 so that's generally the framework that we look for now what's really important to understand is that investment philosophy isn't based on ensuring that we necessarily need to have the most financial success so this is where we're a little different because we don't view what we're building in web3 as one where the financial outcome is the only outcome. It's important to be sustainable, but we're looking to build the ecosystem. And by building the ecosystem, what we hope to see is that actually there will be a collective effort where, generally speaking, the rest of the portfolio will rise and do well because of an activity that maybe several companies do that may not necessarily have a direct large financial output. When we invested in OpenSea you know, four years ago or so, you know, we certainly didn't know that it was going to be as big as it was, but it was really meant to trigger a growth in that market. And the fact that OpenSea did really well is, is wonderful. But actually, regardless of it having done so well, it helped push an NFT market and create an understanding and create a marketplace effect that others weren't able to do at that time. Now, there's many competitors to OpenSea, but back in the day, that was super, super important. And our investment thesis was based on that, to push that forward. Not necessarily because we're hoping it would be worth $13 billion, which is, you know, amazing. But again, you know, it's hard to forecast four years ago to say, well, we should invest in this because it will be worth billions of dollars. Uh, as, 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 as you can imagine, as you know, fellow entrepreneurs, that's a pretty lofty goal <laughs> to say, oh, we must only invest in unicorns. That doesn't, that doesn't happen really. Certainly not for, for, for most people. So that's not, that's, that was never the driver and continues to be that uh, scenario. So my encouragement for all young people is to think of this a little bit like the age of exploration, that you're basically wandering and exploring new lands because perhaps the current version of your life is not satisfactory to you or it's not what you like or whatever the reasons may be. And instead of trying to fly to space, for instance, for that exploration, because maybe we're not quite there yet, you go to the virtual space, which is actually perhaps the more important one because it's where we're living here on Earth physically that we need to solve. 
Now, I'll give you an example of something that some people might look at and say, well, that's kind of left field. Why are we doing this? And we've made a lot of noise recently talking about our uh, sort of ventures into education. And as you know, from my background, I have a sort of soft spot for education. But the reason why we focused on this is because it fit a number of these criteria. The first one was there was an asset class that we saw with teaching content that was, you know, just content at first, but because of NFTs, content could become assets. And you could own the property of these teaching materials that you can then choose to sell or pass on to others if you like. And that basically created for this capital formation for these teaching assets. And the reason we acquired TinyTap is because they were serving millions of families and they had hundreds of thousands of teachers who were dependent on making maybe $500 or $1,000 a year you know, on that particular teaching content that they were creating for others in a Netflix-like model. Not bad, but you know, it's not going to change the world. It's, it's, it's extra side income. But when you have capital formation, just like you have with property, and if it's an asset, a teaching content that makes $1,000 a year for 10% yield, I might be prepared to pay $10,000 for it now. Now that changes because when you give a teacher $10,000 as opposed to $1,000 a year, it changes their life. It changes the way they think about things as well. It changes their opportunity profile. And so we look for these type of things that open up entirely new markets. In this case, it's education but also have the kind of impact that it does. In this case, potentially, again, it's still to be proven, unlocking you know, the creative capital of all the teachers in the world, which are amongst perhaps the most important content creators in the world, and unlocking that so that real value and real money can flow back into the education system you know, as it should have in the first place, which, which it hasn't done. When you think about what you know, Axie Infinity did, for instance, and blockchain gaming, it actually created value out of the gaming time in places like the Philippines and Venezuela and Indonesia, where that gaming time wasn't worth much, but actually was enough to really not just survive, but make them thrive, where they were making more money playing blockchain games and adding value to the network uh, and uh, you know, for their virtual time and effort, which is anyway what happens in games, except they never pay you for it otherwise. Right? So again, that's the impact, and that's the, that's the potential that we want to see. So if you have an idea that, uh, or if you want to experiment in this mode, then I definitely encourage you to look at it. And if not, we've got an accelerator as well that you know, uh, we're running together with Brink that you can go in and apply for, at least learn from. And you know, unlike a few years ago, the material information about the metaverse and Web3 is much richer. Still early though. Right. I mean, it's I still view this as like, you know, early 2000s Internet. And if if that is true, we still have, you know, a couple of decades of growth to go. So it's not too late. Yeah. So much to unpack there. First of all, I'll just say to everybody listening, um, yeah, it's Accelerator and all the companies he just mentioned. We'll put in the notes in the podcast notes down below so you can go check them out. If you want help to start your um, business, then then I, I, I cannot recommend uh, getting into the Brink Accelerator program enough. I think getting help is crucial today. No one can do it on their own. So um, please go check out the links below. And, and some of the companies Yat just mentioned are inspiring. I'll put the stories and the information about them down below as well. Now, I wanted to ask you, and, and I think this, this is... Um, I'm going to call it the white elephant in the room for a minute because when we're recording this podcast, there's a there's a winter um, taking place in in the NFT crypto world. Maybe by the time that someone's listening to this a year from now, uh, it will be back on track. Uh, but I think w w while we're you know recording this, there is there is a, a point in this history of this of this stuff that people are like, oh, it's all a scam. It's not real. It's a fugazi, and and um, you know. 
and I know what you're going to say, I think, but I want to hear your view on this. And like, where, where's it all going? But just before you say, I say that, you know, history repeats itself, doesn't it? Like you and I both uh, were in Hong Kong in 2000 when the dot-com had crashed and uh, we both got involved in the digital world. I started a digital agency and and and, and you, you did one that was even more successful than mine. And I think that we, and we kind of pushed through, everyone in Hong Kong was telling us, oh, no one cares about digital anymore. Dot-com's over. It's no longer uh, relevant. Um, people want, it's gone. It's a fad. It's a, the internet's a fad, I think someone once said to me. And, and, and we pushed through and built um, empires on the back of what everyone says was dead, right? So history repeats itself. Now, is history repeating itself here or are there some cautionary elements that people listening need to be careful of? So I think the, the sort of um, parallel quote uh, that uh, is often given is that history may not necessarily repeat itself, but it certainly rhymes, right? So there's certainly echoes of that. And I would say in this particular case, it is definitely the case, um, and we can learn from history. But I think the main thing that I look at it is not even thinking about is history repeating itself? Am I looking at the past to determine how the future looks like? I'm just thinking about what I think is important to what I'm building for the world. And I feel that if any person thinks in a matter of impact and purpose, then they'll find their way. You know, It may not necessarily be the biggest thing that they can change in the world, but it will typically be that North Star that guides them. Because, you know, as you know, as an entrepreneur, you never quite get there in the way that you thought you would. It's, it's never a straight line. It's always sort of choppy. But if you generally know where you want to go and you're determined to do that, then everything else is just an obstacle to overcome. It doesn't really matter. And that's the lens that we took back in what was, you know, termed the crypto winter back in 2018. Now, I can look at that now and sort of be a little bit relaxed about it, relatively speaking, because people talk about the crypto winter today because if they entered six months ago, it definitely feels like a winter. But if you entered four years ago, this is still sunshine. Right? So maybe this is a crypto autumn. Maybe this is a chilly time, right? Or if this is a crypto winter, then 2018 was a crypto ice age, right? So it's, it's all relative to when you entered the space um, relative to the market. But one of the things that I think we need to look at is just looking at the long-term trajectory. So if you're only there for the next six months or for the next three months, and you're just hoping to sort of trade your way into it, as some people do, well, then honestly, I don't have any words for you because that's obviously your agenda. And, you know, we're not here to time the market. But if you believe where the space is going, because really, really, you know, if Web3 is, in fact, the natural successor of the Internet, then we're talking about onboarding five to six billion people onto this. And we're not, we're, you know, we're barely in the tens of millions. Then we still have a long, long way to go, just how the Internet grew or how mobile grew back in the early days. So it doesn't matter if there's a little bit of a blip in, in, in sort of the prices, relatively speaking, as long as you're building. Now, I just came back from Korea uh, and, you know, from Korea Blockchain Week. And one of the things that I spoke about, which really resonated with me, and I think the audience appreciated was, was sort of the miracle of the Han River. Now, what's interesting about that is that Korea, if for those of you who might remember, 30 to 40 years had a lower GDP than North Korea, had a smaller population, and was one of the poorest nations in the world. Now, a country that had no natural resources, it didn't have oil or anything like this, uh, was sort of, you know, less privileged at the time, maybe less military power, whatever you want to call it, 40 years ago, is today amongst the wealthiest nations, somewhere between 10, 11, 12, in the national sort of GDP sense, right, as a nation that has emerged over the last decades as an absolute leader. And how did they do this? They did this by focusing on culture, on content and on creativity. And in a way, they are representative a little bit of, 
you know, the power of data and knowledge because it's all innovation. It's all ideas. It's all concepts like this, whether it's K-pop, K-drama, Samsung, you know, whatever these inventions and cre creative outputs are, they're, they're based on that type of uh, activity that is not based on the natural resources that I had the good fortune of having. And what's really fascinating about North Korea is that focus on culture is actually what drove them forward. And of course, they had, you know, a democracy and they had property rights that people could build and construct on. And as you may remember, back in the Asian economic crisis, you know, we're really dating ourselves here, right? But this was basically in 98. South Korea looked like it was on its knees. It was absolutely destroyed. We had all these pictures of, you know, the people wandering around, not wanting to go home, not, you know, sort of depressed about the fact that they were let go. But when you look at the chart of growth from Korea over the 30-year cycle in which it went from a nation poorer than North Korea to where it is today, it shows up as a tiny blip. Even though when we remember it in 98, it was cataclysmic. It seemed like it was the end of the world. But yet actually, on the scale of things, it was just a blip. And what's happening right now is, yes, it may seem cataclysmic in the sense that you may have invested, unfortunately, in some tokens that maybe didn't do well at all. And that hasn't been great. But in the greater scheme of things, actually, the chart is still broadly up. If you take a look at where Bitcoin and Ethereum was, even just three years ago, if you take a look at where Sand or Axie Infinity, or all of these projects were, you know, or OpenSea, even just three years ago, it's still a small number. And I think one of the things that you compare with the market, a lot of people put the narrative and say, oh, look at NFT trading and volumes is down. But you know what? In ETH terms, the actual volume is relatively similar. It's down, but it's not down as big as people say it is. Because, of course, when ETH was you know, high in the three to four thousands, then the transaction rates were literally three to four times bigger in terms of value. So we shouldn't necessarily measure it the same way. I remember when the internet basically ended up sort of being, you know, people were critical about the internet. One of the reasons we kept building and particularly focusing on email is that we saw that the traffic kept increasing. We saw that user steps coming even though the money that we were making per user wasn't the same, or maybe the VC money wasn't the same, more precisely. Um, but actually what happened was that we saw usage rates go up and we saw activity. And that's actually what's happening on blockchain today. How many people are developing on blockchain today? You know, How many of the smartest people that we all know have all moved into Web3 or are excited by its prospect in comparison to, say, even just a few years ago? So when you look at those factors, I actually believe that you know, it's a much more certain scenario than it was, say, four years ago. And I think people that know your story, um, I think, understand uh, how this is happening. But you recently raised 75 million in this, uh, I guess, crypto winter. And people wonder why. And I think when you're explaining the, your long-term vision, um, that's why, right? You've, you've got a long-term vision. It's not about what's happening today. It's about the potential of what the technology and, and the system can do in the future for people. It's also more than, I mean, the potential is absolutely important. Um, and certainly, uh, and, you know, we need to do right by investors to obviously create, you know, reasonable returns and everything. But it's also about shaping the space, which I think is really important. We are in a position right now where we can help shape the space in a positive manner that we think is necessary. Because one of the things we don't want to do is create a situation where we go back to sort of, you know, a Web2 narrative just wrapped in a Web3 wrapper. That's not and what it, it we can want. easily happen, we want right? True decentralization. We want real democracy. Yeah, and that can, that can easily well, happen. Power I can corrupt, can't it? So I think the, you know, obviously, what's the famous proverb was like, you know, Absolute power corrupts absolutely, right? I mean, I think I think that's proven time and time again that this happens. But in our particular case, let's take a look at Sandbox, for instance. 
that in reality, Sandbox is actually one that has several shareholders at the company level. It's not just one that's owned just by us. But the second thing is that the tokens themselves are actually not majority owned by the Sandbox itself. It is distributed and more and more widely distributed over time. And the tokens are the ones that grant you governance and voting rights. Now, that means over time, whether we own 20% or 25% or whatever it is, we obviously have a very powerful voting block, perhaps, but we cannot do everything without getting the consent of everyone else. And eventually, over time, I anticipate with all of the projects that we're involved in, we get to a point where you know it's very distributed and very decentralized, and we much rather be this way because we think the longevity of a business can only take place when the community that is supporting it has a stake in it. Now, if you're actually controlling it, really, if you think about it, the only ones who really have a vested interest in its success is the actual company itself, which means, and we've seen this before, they will start doing things that hurt the community for their own benefit. And we don't have to look too far at these examples because it turns out that these activities are more profitable to us. That's why we'll do that. And so in this construction, it will be different because at the end of the day, we could even be ousted from our own projects because of the governance setup. So we're experimenting around with this a, a, a lot, of course. But you know, one of the things that you know, I feel really blessed and um, really fortunate to be able to do is to use you know, the, the capital and the influence that we have to try to shape the space where we can create more equity and create more sort of a, a fair distribution of value you know, through Web3, through this data ownership. Mm. I think it's one of the things, I mean, uh, it's public knowledge. Two years ago, I was pretty anti-NFT and, and, and I got educated by you. Uh, mainly, frankly, and, and by, by the community around me when I opened up my bubble. And what I really love about things like NFTs is how it's actually given a lot of people hope and income. And artists, for example, having the ability to directly communicate with their community and having a community as opposed to having to go through a centralized art gallery, for example, and, and then have that art gallery take most of the profit. And then there's no resale value for the artists. They don't get any. Whereas NFTs, they can sell it. And then they can sell it again and again and again, and they still make income every time the transaction happens. And I think this is revolutionary. And that's actually the thing that made me fall in love with this space so much. And, it, and it's a big differential. And, and to your point, you know, and, and, I, and, I, and I believe uh, everything you're doing is, is, is different to, to, to anybody else I've seen out in the space. The decentralization mindset that you have is the future. And I think people listening should build decentralized businesses. Yeah, I think one of the really sort of interesting things about the NFT artists, and they're just leading the way in this way, but it's not the end goal, obviously. There's many more that we can do this, is that all of our time should actually give us some kind of value for what we're doing to it, right? So, you know, whether you spend it on TikTok, whether you spend it on Instagram, you're accruing value to the network. So why is that value not coming back to you? And I actually think it solves some of the biggest issues around income inequality. Because one of the problems we have right now is that all the time we spend online isn't accruing value to us, it's accruing value to the platform. But actually, when you think about equity and assets, data comes from us. We're the ones creating it. We're the ones that emerges with this valuable asset. It's not something that we happen to be fortunate enough to sort of you know, live, get from the ground that we happen to live on, for instance, or have inherited. It comes from our experiences. So the more experience we have, or the more creativity we have, or the more ideas we have, we get to benefit from this, right? So creativity is at the center of this, which I think is a much more natural human condition than turning all of us into machines, which was necessary back in history, but is no longer required today. So that means we're all creators of our own equity. So we talk about this thing that we say that the future isn't going to be universal basic income. We in the future, especially around Web3, can be this thing that we define as universal basic equity because we are the creators of our own equity and create, therefore, a more fair framework around that. 
Now, that sounds maybe a little bit sort of, you know, philosoph philosophical revolutionary type. But actually, the reality is that I think it's just another next step to this idea of property rights and the idea of capitalism, which I think is another thing that currently has been somewhat under attack. And to this point where, you know, when you were anti-NFTs, you weren't the only, you know, friends and people I knew, you know, really sharp libertarians, maybe democratically minded people who were very much against crypto. And I learned this when I was stuck in the U.S., uh, you know, because of COVID, I couldn't get back to Hong Kong. And I started just meeting with people more regularly about this because from the outside, you know, I didn't understand Trump and I didn't understand, you know, you know, what the whole deal was between Democrats and Republicans and, you know, why were they all fighting about stuff? But I've come to appreciate, at least from my particular lens, that actually what's happened is that, you know, my very liberal minded friends, mostly of a democratic construction, have indirectly, maybe unknowingly in some cases, become anti-capitalist. Now, from an outsider perspective, the idea that there are strong anti-capitalist forces in America seems like, how is that even possible? <laughs> right? That just seems crazy. But actually, that is what's happening from at least the sort of um, communications I've had. And that's because wealth uh, and the generative aspects of inherited wealth and you know, money itself has become a source of inequity. If you have money, you can make more money. And you can do it passively because you own land. Or, and by the way, this is a very similar parallel to what's happening in Hong Kong. If you own real estate, you're fine. If you don't own real estate, you're kind of screwed. And how do you get to owning real estate? Well, you need all this money. But how do you get all this money? Not in your lifetime, doing a normal job, for instance, right? So this basically creates a new feudal structure. Basically, you may replace them uh, You know, in terms of they may not be called kings and nobles, but effectively it's the same because power basically gets you know, centered around the money and is exacerbated with COVID because look what happened with COVID. Those who had money made even more money and those who didn't made less. Even though we're supposed to all equally struggle, we're all supposed to have the illness. It's supposed to be something that, you know, we all can sort of, uh, sort of solve together for the common good. Turns out that a few of them benefited greatly from this because they had money. They could invest. They could, they could do these things that the people without money couldn't do, which is unfortunately most of the world. So crypto, unfortunately, more so in the West, has had this reputation of being the tool for the rich and for the rich just to get richer. It's just another method of extracting value, which again, I think is a very uh, sort of a wrong perspective because actually Web3 is a very anti-monopolistic quality because data is open. It means, for instance, if you look at what happened with LooksRare, they just looked at all the data of OpenSea and said, hey, we're going to build a competitor to OpenSea. And anyone who traded on OpenSea, we're going to give you free tokens and we're going to give you a benefit if you come. Now, imagine what would happen in the real world if the data of Facebook was open. Someone could easily make a competitor to Facebook and say, I offer you a version of a social network that will pay you for your money because I know what Facebook is making from you. If I know that Facebook is making $50 from you, then maybe I'll pay you $25 instead of just taking it from you and you can choose to go to that social network. It's a real fair market. It's making data the commodity that it should be. And so this is the power of Web3, but most people don't understand that because they still aren't within this. Also, they don't understand and sometimes take for granted their democratic institution. And I think this is maybe another perspective, whereas if you grew up in the West, you grew up with democracy. Many of us don't even, well, many who I know may not even bother voting because you know, if they did, we wouldn't have barely 51% turnout rates, right? Um, and so they've taken that for granted and they don't understand the value of this. Whereas in Asia, most of the democracies are fairly young because certainly maybe some of us, or at least our parents' generation, 
have experienced a time where there was no democracy, where they had no property rights. And so while there may still be inequity, capitalism and the growth of more freedoms has been a net beneficiary for Asian societies. Whereas in America, if you look at the last 20 years, it appeared to have gone the other way. And therefore, people view capitalism more negatively, I think, in the West, particularly in America, as opposed to Asia, despite the inequity, because broadly speaking, it's been better than they were there before. So I think this is also the reason why I think Asia can lead in this space, because the audiences are receptive. Whereas in America, many of the gaming audiences in particular, you know, even though companies have said, oh, they want to do NFTs, the gamers themselves are like, I don't want that. I don't want the introduction of financification and you know capitalism and all the inequity that I experience in the real world to be in the digital world, that seems wrong. And I don't want that because they don't understand it. And so part of our job, obviously, is to make sure that they understand that, in fact, this protects their interests. This is better for them. Well, uh, I, I, I agree. I, I, I think I'm one of these people that has made money from capitalism and benefited tremendously from capitalism. Um, I was 15 years old when I was kicked out of home. I was homeless for the first part of my life, you know, and I have benefited from building businesses, making money and the capitalistic system and and all those things. And, and, And I have slowly begun to dislike capitalism in many ways i see its weaknesses as i suppose when i was younger i saw its strengths we can elect people and we can we have we have a say and all these things i thought i had control over and as i've got older i realized i don't and i think um i think that yeah crypto and 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 all of that world is is being part i mean someone like elon musk gets involved in crypto suddenly it's it is you know the richest man on the planet is making money from bitcoin as opposed to the underlining benefit of of crypto and the blockchain and and that people get a little bit distracted by the money but what i have seen in emerging countries having lived in thailand and 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 lived in parts of asia that that are poor that these technologies enable people um like the rice farmers your example you know the rice farmers to to get access to the um, same privileges that the rich have Um, in fact it's leveling the playing field so the one thing i would say and this is this is so i recently interviewed tony fidel who uh, of course invented the ipod and he sold his company to apple and then worked for them to build and create the iphone um a, a really fascinating uh, talk and he talked about how the iphone is just a fridge and what you put in that fridge defines whether or not you get the nutrition you need um, but he talked a, a little bit uh, well he was quite controversial um and uh, you know elon musk was cr- made to cry once in an interview because Buzz Aldrin said he didn't like what Elon Musk was doing. It shouldn't be controlled by a corporation space, right? And, and so I don't want to make you cry here, but uh, Tony Fidel did say, um, fuck the metaverse, basically. He said that uh, there's real problems in the real world and we need to deal with those. We shouldn't be putting trillions into this fake world. Um, what's your view on that? Well, I mean, honestly speaking, Tony Fadell wouldn't be Tony Fadell if he wasn't anything but controversial and opinionated. And in fact, I think Mark Cuban himself basically said something similar about metaverse land saying that's like the stupidest shit ever or whatever it is that he said. And, you know, God bless them because you need strong opinions. And if they didn't have strong opinions, they wouldn't be who they are. But they're both very, very wrong. And the reason why I, I say they're very, very wrong is because it seems to me that they've lost touch with where our generations spend their time. So yes, we have real problems in the real world. They need to be fixed. I agree. But they will be fixed because of the metaverse. They won't be fixed because we're all going back to being laborers or that we're going to be truck drivers or that we're going to be working for Uber or what, right? I mean, you know, this is not the solution. We know where that road has gone. And many of those same people have said, well, stick to the way things used to be. 
Well, they've forgotten something, which is that when they were, or their parents, certainly a generation, depending on their age, they benefited from 10% interest rates when they deposited their money. Remember those days when we put money in a bank account that we generated? We could accumulate wealth because there wasn't this kind of inflation, right? And there was a different market in the world. And we could buy our homes, by the way, for very reasonable prices. Anyone who bought their home, whether it's in London or in Hong Kong or whatever, you know, basically was able to generate um, you know, long-term value. And God bless all those who managed to get that, including the Mark Cubans and Tony Fadels, because they've done well. But what about all those who can't do that? They will never reach the kind of income and wealth in this paradigm. And this is the irony, right? Because Mark Cuban or Tony Fadell didn't make money playing the old game. They didn't become a real estate scion, nor did they hunt for oil. They built a technology company that changed the world. And you could argue, well, you know, what you know, he built with Nest or what he built with iPhone had an impact. But how many people were critical of what those devices were? Who needs IoT? Why does a smartphone solve the world? Don't we need to feed people first before we give them virtual devices and playing apps? How many hours of apparent waste of times of games are kids playing on these iPhones? I mean, you could definitely take all these perspectives and say, well, you know what, like that, all that. But it led to incredible other areas of innovation that gave us opportunity and time and all these things that we can build valuable new businesses out of. And that's, the, that's what this is. And the metaverse is that next iteration. We will generate new opportunities in the metaverse, in my belief in particular, because it finally gives equity to creators. You know, people talk about creative capital, but it doesn't mean much because everyone who buys it or uses it from us is rented. So basically, an artist couldn't make money until he had NFTs. Now he actually has the way to make continued value and royalties from that income stream. More importantly, he can reinvest back into the ecosystem and nobody can control the entire space. They can't, they can't be sort of a case where like a, like a Spotify would emerge in Web3 that controls all of the music space. Instead, what would happen is that royalties would flow more fairly into the actual artists and people can have their own businesses. They could be more competitive and people would make, hopefully broadly, more value because the space increases. Now, when you create more value and wealth in the metaverse, as has happened in the internet, by the way, okay, the internet or the app economy did not exist 10 years ago. It is now a $5 trillion industry employing how many people around the world, creating how much value, right? All that value existed because of a virtual construct of a device of, you know, what became the iPhone and the smartphone. And that was only 10 years ago. That value flowed into the real world. People started buying houses, people started investing, people started doing stuff. But it was still, from our perspective, still too centralized because the only beneficiaries were the market participants who could build or who could invest, right? So mostly the VCs and obviously the engineers and people who worked benefited. But with the metaverse, this is how every person on the internet can now benefit because they can own a piece of this. Right? Because in the end of the day, every person who is online has created a benefit to the network, a reason why we're there, and made it powerful. That value can now share back to it. And so, you know, for me, the metaverse represents that hope, that opportunity. And it is what is going to, we think, change the world so that it will solve the real-world problems that we have today because it comes from finally valuing our creative labor and our creative time. Well said. 
And um, I think it's good to have different opinions. You would have been proud of me, yeah? I actually uh, disagreed with him. And I did argue... Um, a, a point you're making there, I went, I went deep into like, well, you know, Adidas launched an NFT range. People went and bought it. That means there's people potentially buying less in the real world because he's very much on about saving the planet, which is, of course, important, and our resources, which, of course, is important. But I think the two are connected. You know, if people buy stuff in the metaverse, it's probably better than buying a physical item that has to get made in a factory, get shipped, all that cost to the planet. It's If we can shift people to buy less rubbish in the real world and perhaps buy more rubbish in the metaverse, that's actually a good thing. You know, like it, 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 the two aren't disconnected. Yes, right? it is. Yeah. Absolutely. And then the other thing that you said, I, 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 I want people to pick up on, and, and you know, you talk about a world where... Um, people can own a part of, say, Facebook in the future, part of the things that they spend time on. I think the other thing that um, is lacking in the corporate world is a sense of purpose. Why are these companies operating? What what are they doing with all their profits? I mean, this is particularly prevalent in the UK right now when people are really finding it hard to pay their electricity bills, yet the electricity bill companies are making an absolute fortune. So I think that one thing I think is really interesting in the nuance of what you're saying is like, purpose matters so and the community if you own a part of the business can influence the purpose and that's something i notice in your business your investment strategy like you said isn't about necessarily making money although sustainability is important being able to reinvest and having successes that's all important but the purpose of those businesses what they're doing to encourage this space to grow and purpose is really important. People need to start thinking about not just themselves and their own value and equity, but how they can contribute and affect these companies that are no longer big corporations that can decide the purpose themselves, affect the purpose of the companies that you're involved in. Do you think, do you think that's a fair statement? That's an absolutely fair statement. I think one of the things that we believe very strongly in is that you know we do believe that capitalism is a positive incentive. We think that without capitalism, we wouldn't have innovation. We wouldn't have the you know a way in which the creative effort of building and disrupting and making new things is fairly rewarded. So we need that system in which that can be rewarded. But what we also um, feel is important is that if someone makes a lot of money or is very successful, the entire network, the community, has to benefit. And by the way, that's kind of how things used to be in a way. You know, if, you know, IBM was growing really large, they would build, you know, they would hire a lot of people in the neighborhood and they would employ lots of people and restaurants mushroomed and, you know, laundromats and like new businesses emerged and, you know, the whole town thrived, right? I mean, that was sort of the construction of this in the past. But the problem is that with the data construct with AI and machines, the owners of the AI and the machines that do all this work don't require the human labor anymore. And so what happens is it becomes a concentration of the wealth that basically is controlled by really only a few people because automation was able to basically sort of do away with much of the labor that was the case before. And so its value and its benefits were not flowing through, even though such an amazing amount of value was created. I mean, just think about the profits of an Apple or Facebook or Tencent or just any tech company in the world. They are unthinkable values money. I mean, these are companies that have more cash reserves than many nation states that are not small, right? I mean, you know, uh, you know, parked away in Ireland or wherever that may be. But, you know, that being a different topic altogether, they have incredible power. And how does it benefit the communities in which they got this value from? What are they doing? So one of the ways that we look at this is not just to say, look, because it's Web3, the network benefits, of course, that's one way. But another way is to invest back into the community because we have benefited from the space. And how do we grow the space? by putting it back. 
Now, we don't think of it as like a tax per se, but it's reinvesting in the community. You can't build a community if you don't invest in it, which is, by the way, a lesson that I think many of our real estate friends around the world need to know, especially in Hong Kong, which is that, you know, one of the problems about real estate is that it inadvertently makes you a little lazy because you can just passively sit back and just make money. You don't suddenly think you have to add value. And suddenly you think, oh, well, all the value that I've generated is because I was really smart to buy this property. But the reality is that if you bought property in Hong Kong, for instance, over the last 20 years, you didn't have to be smart. You just had to have the right timing, you had the money. So you were lucky to get there. But what enabled you to get that money was the fact that you were in Hong Kong, maybe you were born to privilege. You know, the environment of Hong Kong, the entire community contributed to that success indirectly. Because if you weren't born in Hong Kong, if you didn't have contacts, if you weren't here, then frankly, maybe you wouldn't have had that success. Who knows, right? So you owe something back to Hong Kong. Yet how many people, as you well know, actually are putting money back into Hong Kong to entrepreneurs, regardless of whether the business in and of itself is super successful, right? I mean, one of the reasons why I think you built an accelerator, why we're supporting accelerators, is because we want young talent in the place that helped us become who we are to emerge and to flourish and to grow. And to us, it is another way of giving back. It is maybe a form of tax, if you will, but I think it's an obligation, it's a duty that we have to support the places. Because we didn't get there just because we were we. We'd like to say, yes, you know, our smarts and our talent and our hard work got us there. That's a part of it, maybe. But a huge part was circumstance, was the fact that we were lucky, that we were in the right place in the right time with a community that helped us get to where we were. And we lose sight of this because we take it for granted, or maybe it's a narrative that suits us because we want to pretend that we are smarter than others because we're earlier than others because blah, 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 blah. But the reality is that even if you were smarter than others, you still got there because of the community that enabled you to get there. So you owe it to them. And I think this is when we think of investing is the same way. We invest in the communities. We invest in Web3 companies that we believe share our ethos, but may not necessarily have the absolute home run winner for like, you know, 100x. Who knows? But we believe that they're going to be positive for ecosystem, provide the right energy. And we're partially also doing our job, which is to give back to the community. The irony is that um, anyone that's looking to get involved in the future needs to understand how powerful communities are. I think we're going back to, to, to going back in time, really, and realizing the power of people working together. I mean, that's kind of the democracy concept right the people power and i think it's not new but i think it's got new technology to back it up platforms like discord and and and, and systems that allow communities to come together and work together to solve problems i think and that's why you've been so successful i think because you are actually just focusing on the community side and the value that that community can bring as opposed to will we make billions from this company and um it's it's, it's absolutely fascinating I, I could talk to you forever i've just got a couple more questions before i let you go and 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 and, uh, and and run your purposeful business. Um, I I guess um, a lot of people. Well, we asked on Twitter, you know, what, what what people would like to ask you, and and you know the typical questions like, um, what's your net worth? And and I kind of know if I ask you that question, your your answer is you probably won't even know because you're not thinking about that. And for people listening, I'm pretty sure you know if you don't think about money and think about purpose, you you will make money. But but I have interest. Do you, do you think about how much you personally uh, made? Do you think about net worth? Is this something even... Do you want to say what your net worth is first time in history? Not like... No, I don't. How, do, how, how does it play out in your mind, net no, worth? No, uh, that's, that's, that's funny how people... That's what people... 
But people want to know, There's right? They're like, well, how, how much has he made? How, how you know, how re- it's back to that centralization thing, isn't it? But what, what do you feel about this whole concept of people's fascination with net worth? So there is obviously speculation and a lot of people writing articles about stuff, about assumptions on net worth and all that kind of stuff. But I think the reality is that, first of all, whatever net worth I may have is all tied up in sort of, you know, mostly animal stock. So it's all relative, right? Because I haven't sold any. So, so, so it's like, yeah, maybe. So basically, the way I look at net worth is basically my contribution to society and to the culture. So I don't need to, I, I don't think it's about how much money you make. And I think for the most powerful people in the world, it's no longer about how much money you make anyway. It's about the impact you can deliver. So to me, effectively, I see this more as sort of my worth is the worth that I can create for culture and society in the space. If I can help people uh, basically grow into the space and be successful, then that forms a part of my net worth. And I think this comes, frankly, from a place of privilege that you know you and I enjoy, which is that we don't really have to worry about our kids' education, nor do we have to worry about the roof under our head. Right? These are things that we have our relative basic and then some needs met. So it is a luxury to say, I don't need to care about it because, you know, we don't. And while there are some people who may obsess about this, it's a different kind of competition for them. Well, God bless them. That's their value system. That is not my value system. And that's not important. But instead, you know, if we can focus our time on getting people who do have to worry about these things to a place where it's no longer such an issue for them, where they can have some freedoms, as we've seen with people who have been collecting NFTs in the past and have been playing in the Web3 space that has changed their life. And they were able to f- think more freely and be more open and be more free because, you know, there's a point where, you know, financial freedom, you know, there's a point of financial freedom where you have enough that you don't have to worry about this stuff. And then I think there's some studies that say, and then afterwards, when you start making so much more, that doesn't give you necessarily more freedom or more happiness whatsoever. Right? So there is a correlation between you need financial freedom to have a degree of liberty, shall we say, which you know, contributes to your happiness. But when it comes down to how much you make, I think it's completely the wrong conversation. And likewise, you know, because I'm in the Web3 space, which means obviously I have a lot of assets in crypto, my net worth, frankly, is very, <laughs> very, very volatile. And I think it would be extremely unhealthy for me if I started looking at the prices every day. It doesn't matter. What matters to me is really the impact we drive, and 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 this is this is the important thing to us. Well said, well said, and I and I hope we can, and then the people listening can start to um, join in this kind of idea that, that net worth. I mean, I always love Bhutan uh, as a place, and because they have gross national happiness as a measurement, not GDP. I mean, and everything seems to be based around the financial aspects of a country of a person. I mean, even even Musk, I think, fell into this trap when he did a tweet saying, "I'm number one now" to Jeff Bezos, right? as if that really matters and how out of touch is that when when actually i think he's quite purposeful you know he's doing things that i think are making the world a better place but even that that he fell down a little bit of a ego hole for a moment there right where he's like okay i'm gonna show off and flex for a minute and 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 i think your message is really important uh to to highlight again for me it links back to my purposeful project you know like we've got to get back to purpose not just profit we've got to remember why we're doing it not how much we make doing it I think one of the challenges right now is that when you are in a position of privilege, especially in the world we live in right now, and especially if you happen to be, you know, amongst the single digit percentile, it is easy to lose touch with the rest of the world because it's not one that you're exposed to. And I think it's therefore really important that you spend your time thinking about them as well and trying to solve their problems too in one form or the other, because you need to remind yourself where most of the world lives. Much of the ignorance and frankly, sort of 
sort of heartlessness that people feel is because that's not to say that the people in privilege are heartless. It's that they don't understand. They don't know, right? You know, it's, uh, and I think for all of us who, you know, send our kids to private schools, and they go to boarding school and they go to international schools and then colleges, you know, they're sheltered in a way, right? Um, and they're in a position where they, they may not see the rest of the world. And one of my big missions has always been to see how we can expose them to this so that they know that the real world isn't like this. But, but unfortunately, when you live in the bubble that is Hong Kong, sometimes that's hard, which is, you know, one of the reasons why we think about sort of education abroad, not because Hong Kong isn't a, is a bad place, it's a great place, but it's because of the fact that, you know, that, that forms you. And, you know, you and I have had, you know, backgrounds that didn't come from money. We didn't have this background. So we are maybe constantly reminded or maybe humbled by the fact that we had beginnings that were less than fortunate. But that's not true for our children. And so on one hand, you know, can we blame them when they don't understand it at all, when we've never done our part in exposing them to this? And I think a lot of people, especially nowadays, when they want to shelter their kids from all the ugliness in the world, understandably so, they also shelter them from the realities that, you know, has many problems that they can help fix. So I think, I think this, is, this is a big part. And, and also, you know, as is the case when you have success, uh, or at least people believe you have success, a lot of people come out of the woodworks and start approaching you and, and you know, say things to you that um, might sound nice, but maybe it's not true. Uh, and at one point you can be immune to it, but, you know, everyone's human. Do you get seduced by this stuff? Mm-hmm. Does it get to your head? Right? And frankly, that's my biggest fear. My biggest fear is that uh, we've become fairly high profile, right? I mean, we're, 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 we're covered both in sort of positive and negative ways, but generally speaking, people know of us and have expectations. So I do view myself more and more as a, as a public figure that needs to be responsible. But my biggest fear is that I might lose, lose touch with, with our audiences, that I might think something about the world that I think is right, that maybe is not what people want, because you know, I'm, I, I may get further and further removed from it because of the fact that we all have you know, more areas of privileges than those that don't. So it's, it's something we constantly have to struggle and remind ourselves of. And I think the, the leaders who think about this, I think have you know, the best intentions hopefully, uh, whereas those who maybe lose themselves into it. And I don't know Elon Musk at all, but, you know, some of the things he says and does, especially recently, makes me wonder to what degree he's actually thinking about the rest mm. of the world, really. Because uh, And I can't tell, obviously, because I don't really know him. It must be hard for him. He must. Have, I think he's lost touch. I have so much respect for him. But equally, when I see he's trying to buy Twitter, I just think it's a you know, $44 billion ego trip. Um, you know, but, <laughs> That's you know, drama by itself, yes. Yeah, it's drama by itself, yeah. But I, I think, you know, the, the, the message you're portraying here, by the way, um, wants me to ask you this final thing, really, which is I know, I know you're a big advocate of, let's, let's call it um, reimagining education. And um, yes, my, my, my five-year-old uh, goes to a private school. Um, I don't want him to go to a private school. I want him to go to a, a normal school like I went to, because actually it was good to have that, you know, different parts of society engagement. I hate in a way that he's having to go to a private school, but the existing school system 
it, it, it's, it's awful. Uh, I recently um, was very blunt on live TV with the education minister here in the UK asking him, why don't they teach kids financial literacy? Why don't they give people at least the option to understand some elements of how business works? Even if they then take that skill of knowledge of business into a job, at least they've got informed consent and choice, right? And so why? He had no answer. It is the most embarrassing answer. It's gone viral on TikTok. Uh, just no, no words that really explain it. And we Weirdly, in private schools, they do teach this stuff. So I know you're uh, a big advocate of fixing education. So th- let's just close by talking a little bit about what you think um, blockchain and, and that world is going to bring uh, to the education sector. So one of the most exciting things we, we think about sort of the metaverse and Web3 and blockchain is that it has a natural way of bringing financial literacy into the masses and particularly our children because they spend time virtually online anyway. And if they're playing in their favorite games and they happen to be earning money or trading or getting value, it's not that we want them to basically just think about the world in terms of money, but it's for them to understand risk, for them to understand investing, and for them to understand, you know, what is value? What does it mean? How do people take it away from me? What is interest rates? You know, one of the big tragedies for our young generations is that for many of them, especially in the West, their first experience with real money and real capitalism is debt, student debt. And the problem with that is it's equivalent of indentured servitude because you go to school for the purposes of repaying your debt. So you can't really have the freedom to necessarily choose the jobs that you want because you have to pay back your debt first, right? I mean, that in itself is a problem. When actually our children have the intellectual capacity to have a portfolio by the time they go to college, if they even want to go to college, right? So, you know, my, my, my son got into non-fungible tokens and crypto fairly early, um, and, uh, you know, he just graduated high school. He has a portfolio now and he knows stuff about the financial world that most of his peers or even older people don't understand. And he has a leg up, but he didn't do it because he learned it in school, nor did he do it because uh, there was a special education system for him. He did it because he got exposed to a market that gave him exposure to this. Now, look at, you know, the place like the Philippines with Axie. You know, millions of people have a crypto wallet, but they don't have a credit card. And the argument that people say, oh, but crypto is so hard. And, you know, well, if someone who doesn't have a college degree and doesn't even have a financial bank account can manage a crypto wallet and make value from that, then where does this argument go in terms of, oh, but you need to be really smart or really sort of studious to understand the world of crypto? Bullshit, right? I mean, if they can do it, you can certainly do it because they don't have all the prerequisite backgrounds. You know, we all share the same level of intelligence here. The only difference is context. And obviously they needed to do it and maybe they had a better motivation, but they could do it. So it's not complex. We can do this. And so my hope is that, you know, what Web3 will do is it will provide broad financial literacy at a young age to everyone because most of the world isn't financially literate. They have a bank account, but that doesn't make them financially literate. They deposit money, not realizing that might be one of the worst decisions in their life to just keep it in a savings account, which basically, you know, loses value at the rate of inflation and then some, right? And they don't understand that because nobody's taught them that. It, they've taught them that they need to save money and that they need to keep it there. And, you know, it's, it's, it's all a big lie at this moment in time. People need to understand that they need to, you know, invest it uh, or, you know, basically appropriately manage their risk. It is part of the way you need to live. And I think this is one that is important. Now, as for schools, I think one of the big challenges that schools have is they're perennially underfunded. You know, when there is tax cuts or when there is cuts in general, unfortunately, education seems to be one of the places that does get hit. And that is a problem. 
because it's investing in the future, but they do so because they need to solve a short-term issue so the long-term can wait, which, by the way, isn't just a government issue. <laughs> Many companies do the same thing. So, so, so how do we solve this? And I think the way to solve this is how we solve many things, which is the private sector has to be directly involved. But the private sector can't be involved in education other than tutoring, which is the zero-sum outcome. I, you know, I, 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 you know, it's a rat race. It's the advantage to only me that I basically put resources ahead of someone else because I can put more money into it. That's basically what tutoring has created. That's kind of the whole sort of education culture, which is wrong. But if you can find a framework in which you can broadly invest in education and make money from it, because it now has an actual capitalist incentive, then more money flows into it, which means more people of talent and ability will enter the space, which means people get more educated in it or invest more time in it because there's more value to be had. You know, teachers are amongst the most important members of our social society because they probably spend more time with our educators and teachers as children than they might even spend with their families, at least during a weekday. But yet they are paid amongst the lowest in comparison to lawyers and bankers and just about any other profession. Why is that right? Well, that's because obviously we don't value it that right, but also because the skills that they have to go through are not the same level because they don't get paid as much. So if you can bring private enterprise into this, if you can bring what we hope that we helped spur on with GameFi, for instance, the world of blockchain gaming. In many ways, I think we, we had a hand in making that market grow. The only space that is getting significant capital growth today, in spite of this crypto winter, is Web3 gaming, not Web2 gaming. So in some ways, you could say that even though we're continuing to invest in the space, we ourselves have kind of done our job to help spur an industry that I think will never go away now because so much capital is flowing into it. So we need to do the same with education. And if we can achieve that, then lots of private capital will flow into education because there's lots of capital out there. And then I think we'll get to, to get to the point where we can actually solve this problem. I don't believe it's fair to ask government to solve this. Government has rarely solved problems of, you know, of these types, generally speaking, right? It's, uh, it's something where the private sector needs to be actively involved in. I just find myself permanently just nodding and and believing in your future so much. I get I get excited actually. Um, I, I I know there's a long way to go, but I get excited by the vision that you have. And um, <laughs> some might listen to it uh, and be saying, right? So uh, basically, um, kids play games at school. You're going to be very popular if, uh, if we manage to make that. And and there'll be money generated in some of those games to learn how financial systems work. And maybe some of that money can go into the classroom to help pay and support the teachers who deserve so much more i think you've just created a gaming classroom and uh but i know it's a lot more complicated than that and and, and but it's really quite exciting and i think if people listening to this podcast feel excited um, and want to know more please go follow yeah on twitter you will see what he's up to you will learn from him i will put the handles down below um and yeah look yeah thank you for taking time out i know how busy you are to share all your knowledge and thank you for doing what you're doing thank you so much it's always a great privilege to be on your show I hope you found today's podcast both inspiring and useful. And if you need more help, visit PurposefulProject.com where all the resources to help you start and grow a business are free.